Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning. This episode contains descriptions of extreme violence that some listeners may find disturbing. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It's now October, which, whether you like it or not, means it's officially Halloween season. The sun is setting earlier, haunted houses are open... 12-foot skeletons are out in people's yards, which I am very jealous of. And with the Halloween season upon us, I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, are binging some good old-fashioned scary movies. I am personally a big fan of horror movies, so this time of year is great for me. There's the old classics like Frankenstein and Dracula, or somewhat more modern classics like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, all the good ones. There's something about scary movies that people really love, and I think a big part of that is probably due to the ability to be scared without being in any actual danger of getting hurt ourselves. When we're watching scary movies, we fear for the protagonist, but at the same time, we retain a certain level of control. If we're at home, we can just turn the movie off if we get too scared or mute it. And even in the theater, if you really get too scared, you can just leave, which I will admit I've definitely done before. Basically, we put ourselves into the scary situation knowing we're going to get scared. We can prepare ourselves for the fear. And at the end, we can take ourselves out of it and go back to normal life. You know, no real harm done. And for some people, scary movies are more than just something you watch during spooky season. And I say this without any judgment, the guest room in my house is essentially horror movie themed, so it's definitely my tribe. Some people get decals on their cars, or name their pets after horror movie monsters, or even get tattoos of their favorite villains. But in 2006, two horror movie fanatics took their obsession to the next level, and they committed a heinous crime to mimic what they saw on the silver screen. The city of Pocatello, Idaho is located in the southeast corner of the state, about an hour south of Idaho Falls, maybe two and a half hours north of Salt Lake City. Although it's the biggest city in Bannock County, it's still fairly small and its population is about 55,000. Its claim to fame is the Idaho State University, which is also the largest employer in the city. It's the kind of city where you know your neighbors and you don't worry too much if you forget to lock your door. Murders happened in Pocatello, but they were pretty rare, maybe one a year. In September of 2006, 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddart was a bright and driven student with dreams of helping people. She was known for her kindness and would go out of her way to make sure that kids who were being picked on or bullied were okay and that they had a friend in her. 
She had a boyfriend, 16-year-old Matt Beckham, and the couple had been dating for about six months. And like any teenage romance, the relationship had its ups and downs and also caused a little bit of friction with Cassie's parents. They felt that Matt didn't always treat their daughter the way that she deserved to be treated. Cassie's aunt and uncle, Allison and Frank Contreras, were planning on going out of town for the weekend starting on September 22nd. They had several cats and dogs, and they asked Cassie to stay at their house and look after the house and the animals while they were away for the weekend. Now, their house was located about 15 minutes north of downtown Pocatello at 11372 West Whispering Cliffs Drive. It was only two nights, just Friday and Saturday, and the Contreras' would return in the afternoon that Sunday. Cassie agreed. She also saw an opportunity to, you know, spend some alone time with her boyfriend while she was at the house. And as a teenager, you know, it was exciting to be able to have the house to herself. She was looking forward to it. That Friday, as planned, the Contreras' left for their vacation, and at about 5.30, Cassie's mom dropped off Cassie and her boyfriend Matt at the house. Even though they didn't always get along with Matt, they had agreed to let Matt stay at the home while Cassie was house-sitting. The layout of this home is sort of unusual. The front door and the main floor of the home is actually located on what looks like the second story. So to get to the front door, you have to walk up a set of wooden stairs outside. The home's kind of built into like a small hill. So if you're looking at the back of the house, you can actually only see the top floor, the main floor. But from the front of the house, you see kind of the downstairs area, which has the garage and also the basement. And it was a fully built out basement. But like I said, you have to walk up the stairs to get to the main floor and the front door. Hopefully I explained that okay, but if not, if you need to see photos, uh, there are photos available both on our Instagram, at Morbid Tourism, and on our website, www.morbidtourism.com. After arriving at the house, Cassie and Matt kind of settled in. They got their stuff organized. They, you know, did what teenagers do when they're alone and just kind of, you know, hung out. And you know how it is when you're in high school, you're living at home and your parents are always around. So to get a house to yourself feels really grown up. And she just wanted to kind of play house with Matt. But she wouldn't get to play house like she wanted because after just a short time, Matt called two of his friends to come over and hang out with them. His friends were Brian Draper and Tori Adamsick. Cassie was not super excited about this. She had been really looking forward to being alone with Matt, but she kind of put up with it and she accepted it. Brian Draper and Tori Adamsick were kind of social outcasts. They were more into what a lot of people would call weird or dark things than your typical high school students. The inside of their lockers, for example, were covered in horror movie posters, and Tori had a collection of knives at home that he liked to brag about. Cassie knew the boys, and most likely because she was nice to everyone, she was nice to them and tolerated their odd behaviors. So Brian and Tori arrived at the house around 8.20 p.m. on Friday night. They asked for a tour of the home, which Cassie obliged to, and showed them around the house, including the basement. 
The boys were a little immature for Cassie. They kind of messed around with some of the workout gear in the basement and just fooled around like teenage boys do while Cassie kind of just sat there and waited for them to be done. Finally, they all agreed that they'd go upstairs and watch a movie together, and so they turned on Kill Bill 2. At 9.45, about an hour and a half after they arrived at the house, Brian and Tori said that they were bored. They'd already seen Kill Bill 2, and they were going to go into town and see a movie at the theater. Cassie was totally okay with this, as it would finally give her and Matt the opportunity to be alone. So after saying goodbye, the boys left. Not long after they left, though, odd things started happening inside the house. The kind of things that you see in horror movies. But they couldn't just turn it off and walk away. They were living it. The lights would suddenly turn off and then would come back on again unexpectedly. Matt and Cassie started hearing strange noises coming from the basement, and the Contreras' dogs were barking at something from the top of the stairs. Cassie's mother called the house to make sure that everything was fine and she was able to get through. She called when the power happened to be on. And though Cassie told her that they were having some issues with the power, she didn't really seem worried. Now, I've never lived in a very rural area, but I imagine that when you do, sometimes there's issues with the power and that's kind of just how it is. I also imagine that Cassie was excited to finally get the alone time that she wanted and she didn't want to cut it short just because there were some issues with the power. So she may have been downplaying the issues a little bit to her mom. But the later it got, the louder the noise got and the lights would go out for longer and longer before coming back on. Finally, at about 11 o'clock, Matt had had enough and he decided to call his mom to see if he and Cassie could both come to their house and spend the night. Unfortunately, Matt's mom was uncomfortable with the prospects of the teenage couple spending the night together under her roof and she told Matt that she would be happy to drive Cassie back to her house for the night, but she wouldn't allow Cassie to stay the night with Matt under her roof. Cassie ultimately decided that, you know, she was responsible for the house and for the pets, and she had made a commitment to her aunt and uncle, so she would stay at the house while Matt went back home. By the time Matt's parents got to the house, the power had been back on for a little while, and everything looked like it was back to normal. They pulled up outside of the house, Matt said goodbye to Cassie, and he went outside and got into the car. Now that would be the last time that anyone would see Cassie Jo Stoddart alive. The next day, Saturday, Matt tried calling the house where Cassie was at several times, but he couldn't get through. He didn't have a car himself, and he ended up getting picked up by his friend Tori around 7 p.m. to hang out. Matt tried to convince Tori to drive him over to the house where Cassie was, but Tori explained that he didn't have a lot of gas, he's a teenager so he doesn't have a lot of money for gas, and the house was all the way across town. So he just tried to calm Matt's fears, saying if there was an issue with the power, then the phone lines were probably messed up too, and he was sure that everything was fine. Finally, on Sunday afternoon, Cassie's aunt and uncle, Allison and Frank, returned to their home where Cassie had been staying. Upon entering the house, Allison was expecting to find Cassie waiting for her, but instead the house was eerily quiet. When Allison made her way to the living room on the main floor of the house, she discovered Cassie's body lying on the floor in front of the couch and covered in blood. 
There was blood splatter all over the walls, all over the TV. It was brutal. Allison immediately called 911 and the dispatcher asked if Cassie was breathing, but Allison just responded by saying, no, she isn't. She's cold. Investigators rushed to the scene and immediately started to put together the details of what had happened. Sadly, just after they arrived on scene, Cassie's mother also arrived at the house looking for Cassie. She had been unable to reach her and she decided to head to the house to check on her, but she was in no way prepared to learn that her baby girl had been murdered. Medical investigators looked at Cassie's body and based on the level of decomposition the body was already experiencing and the last known interactions with Cassie, it was determined that she likely died sometime between the late night hours of Friday, September 22nd and the early morning hours of Saturday, September 23rd. She had been stabbed 31 times, 12 of which would have been fatal on their own. Cassie had attempted to protect herself from the attack. She had extensive defensive wounds, including her pinky, which was almost completely severed from her hand. But based on the evidence, it seemed like the attacker had surprised Cassie, who hardly had any time to react to what was happening to her. There also was no sign of forced entry in the home. There was nothing that seemed to be stolen or really out of place. So it seemed like this was a personal attack against Cassie. And whoever attacked her knew that she would be alone in the house. Cassie's boyfriend, Matt, was the obvious choice of who to talk to first for investigators. He had been the last known person with Cassie, and Cassie's mom seemed to be convinced that he had something to do with her murder. And in his initial interview with investigators, the way he acted made investigators more than a little suspicious of him. He seemed to have no emotion at all, even though his girlfriend had just been brutally murdered hours after he had been with her. Now, we definitely all have different ways of processing loss, and I do not want to judge anyone for how they process it and how they grieve. But in terms of showing emotion or showing sadness, but really there wasn't any emotion showing from Matt to investigators. Matt was holding it all in and he was showing no emotion at all. So investigators asked him about it. Why aren't you sad? You just, your girlfriend just died. And he basically said that he had experienced a lot of death recently Um, I believe his uncle had just died and he had been to a lot of funerals, so he was used to it. In terms of what had happened that Friday night, Matt told investigators essentially the same story that I told you. He had been dropped off at the house on Friday night with Cassie. His friends Brian and Tori came over for a little while. And then the power started having issues, so he was ultimately picked up by his mom around 11.20. Investigators decided to talk to Brian and Tori to see if they could fill in any of the details that Matt might have left out. But Brian and Tori told pretty much the same story. They said that Matt had invited them over to the house, saying that they were going to have a party. But once it became clear that there wasn't going to be a party and no one else was coming over, they got bored and left to go see a movie in town. Brian even said that they had spoken to another classmate named Heather at the movie theater. 
They said that Matt and Cassie both seemed fine. They weren't arguing with each other. They seemed to be in pretty good moods and everything was normal. At this point, investigators were still very suspicious of Matt, but they didn't have any evidence that he committed the crime besides him being the last person to be with Cassie. When his mother had picked him up, he was acting normal and she said that he didn't have any blood on him or seemed to be frazzled at all. And if he had just committed the murder and stabbed Cassie, he would have been covered in blood. So it didn't seem likely. Fingerprints had also been recovered from the house and specifically from the breaker box. These fingerprints were matched to the boyfriend of Cassie's mother, a man named Ralph. Ralph agreed to undergo a polygraph test to clear himself from suspicion, but the results of that polygraph were inconclusive, leading investigators to think he might be hiding something. He claimed that on the night of Cassie's murder, he was with a friend playing video games until the early morning hours and then went to sleep at the friend's house, so he couldn't have committed the murder. He also had zero motive that the investigators could really think of as to why he would want Cassie dead. His friend that he was playing video games with was able to corroborate his alibi. Ralph also had an excuse as to why his fingerprints would be on the breaker box in the first place. He had done electrical work for the Contreras' before, so he wasn't surprised that his fingerprints were there. And the Contreras' backed this up, leading investigators into a dead end. They decided to widen their investigation and started asking some of Cassie's friends questions. It's not too crazy to think that a 16-year-old girl would have secrets that she hid from her family and even boyfriend, but would probably tell to her close friends. One of these friends was Heather. Now you might remember how Brian had claimed that Heather had seen him and Tori at the movie theater that Friday night. Heather claimed though that she never saw them at the theater and also it was well known that Tori was obsessed with Cassie. Heather told investigators how Tori had a collection of knives and how he would sometimes pretend to stab people in the halls of their high school. Feeling like they were finally getting somewhere, investigators brought Brian and Tori back in to question them separately. While questioning Brian, they started to ask him specifics about the movie that he claimed to have seen on that Friday night. And when he was unable to explain even the basic plot points of the movie, he broke down and told the cops that him and Tori had actually been breaking into cars that night. And he hadn't told the truth because he didn't want to get into trouble for that. But the investigators didn't buy it. They continued to press him until he started to cry. Brian then told him he was done with the lies and he wanted to come clean. He told investigators that when Cassie had given them a tour of the home, they had unlocked one of the doors to the basement without her knowing. And after they left, instead of going to the movies, they changed into black clothes and masks from the movie Scream and snuck into the home through that unlocked door. Once inside, they turned off the lights from the breaker box and started making noise in the basement in an effort to lure the couple into the basement where they would attack them, but it didn't work. When Matt talked to his mom on the phone, they overheard the conversation and decided to wait until Matt left and attack only Cassie. 
That also tipped them off that Matt's mom would be coming to the house soon, so they turned the power back on and waited until the coast was clear. Pretty quickly after Matt left, the pair snuck upstairs to the living room where Cassie was sitting alone. Brian claimed that at that point, without him realizing what was even happening, Tori attacked Cassie with the knife, stabbing her over and over again. Brian and Tori then fled from the house, changing out of their bloody clothes and masks and back into their regular clothes. From there, they went back to Brian's house to check in with his parents and basically to create an alibi. They snuck back out after that and they drove to an area called Black Rock Canyon where they buried and attempted to burn their clothes, the masks, and one other key piece of evidence. Now, at the time that Brian was spilling his guts to investigators, they were also trying to get Tori's side of the story. But when they stated that they knew that he had something to do with the murder, he immediately asked for a lawyer and the questioning stopped. Brian agreed to lead the investigators to the area in Black Rock Canyon where they had attempted to destroy the evidence. And along with the black clothes and scream masks, the investigators found a VHS tape. Although the boys had attempted to douse the evidence in alcohol and light it all on fire, alcohol isn't actually as good of an accelerant as you might think. Although some evidence was charred, most of it was in pretty good condition and the tape was able to be played and used as evidence. The tape was one of the most incriminating pieces of evidence that I have ever heard of in a case. The teenagers had been planning this murder for weeks and they had videotaped themselves talking about the plan. Also, keep in mind, this is a VHS from the mid-2000s, so it's all date-stamped. And in the days leading up to the murder, the boys are on tape saying things like, quote, I'm sorry, Cassie's family, but she's perfect, so she's gonna die. They also said, quote, We found our victim and she's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. It's gonna be Cassie Stoddart and she's gonna be alone in a big, dark house. How perfect can you get? End quote. The teens also talked about other serial killers and how they were going to go down in history to be just as famous as the likes of Ted Bundy and the Hillside Stranglers, although they thought that they were going to be much more proficient and get away with more murders than these killers. Keep in mind here that Ted Bundy killed over 30 women, and I'm not saying that to build up the image of Ted Bundy at all, but only to highlight the fact that these two teens wanted to commit dozens of murders. Even just after the murder, the boys got back into their car and videotaped themselves saying things like, holy shit, we did it, we just killed someone. At trial, there was little the defense teams could do to protect their clients. The evidence on the tape was overwhelming. Prosecution also claimed that the boys had been inspired to commit the murders by the Columbine School Massacre and by the Scream movie. So if you're not a horror movie fan and you haven't seen the Scream movies, the first one has a lot of parallels to this murder. A masked intruder goes around killing high school students and, spoiler alert, at the end we find out that it's actually two murderers and they're both in the friend group of the teens that they've been killing. 
And it's more than just a coincidence that the story sounds just like what Brian Draper and Tori Adamsick did. While committing the murder of Cassie Jo Stoddart, the teens were wearing the same mask as the killer in Scream. Ultimately, both Tori Adamsick and Brian Draper were found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. They both received mandatory life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus 30 years for the conspiracy charges. Although both have separately appealed their convictions several times, the convictions have been upheld by the Idaho Supreme Court and both boys will live out the rest of their lives behind bars. Based on public MLS records, after the murders, it appears that Allison and Frank Contreras continued to live in the house for about six years before selling it in 2013. Since then, the house has been sold several more times, no one able to make it their true forever home. But the house is still standing today. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Scream Murder House. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And leave us a rating or review. Please let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, visit morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Additional research by Amanda Poikert. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, the show A Time to Kill on the ID Network, the United States of Murder podcast, and Zillow.